Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. This is a podcast where we discuss events and people from the fur trade era, which generally covers the late 1500s to the 1840s. Now, if you've listened to any number of my other podcast episodes, you'll probably remember the story of how the natives of the East Coast were pushed west as the white folks immigrated to the new country. Those tribes then pushed others west themselves, and those displaced tribes pushed out someone else until, like falling dominoes, the chaos followed a chain of events westward. Well, that's where we're going to pick up this story. The Iroquois Confederacy has pushed the Shawnee and their allies out of the Ohio lands, and the territory has been squabbled over now for some 60 or so years, from about 1660 to about the 1720s, in what we call the Beaver Wars. And the land in this rich, fertile Ohio Valley has been kept in reserve by the Iroquois Confederacy as their personal hunting grounds though no tribes actually lived here for most of that time. Then in 1724, the Delaware Indians from the eastern edge of Pennsylvania are forced out of their home, and they come into the Allegheny Mountains, and they form a village called Kittanning, K-I-T-T-A-N-N-I-N-G, Kittanning, on the Allegheny River. Other tribes soon follow, the Shawnee, the Lenape, and others, and they start taking up residence in that Ohio Valley. Well, the Delaware at Catanning begin trading with those Ohio tribes. And before long, there's this booming business network going on. And you know who else wants in on this lucrative trade? Enter the white man. So the French come down from New France in what we now call Canada, and they claim everything they see is their own. That means starting at Quebec, following the west edge of the Allegheny Mountains all the way down the Mississippi River drainage basin to the present-day Gulf of Mexico, and most importantly to their port in New Orleans, that's all theirs. They tell their native friends and allies to bring them furs in exchange for these awesome French trade goods. Then the British folks come over the Appalachian Mountains from their Virginia colony, and they claim everything they see as theirs. And they tell their native friends and allies to bring them furs in exchange for these awesome British trade goods. Both countries have now claimed that same Ohio territory as their own. Keep in mind that before 1787, Ohio country was the name for all that land that makes up present-day Ohio, plus parts of western Pennsylvania, plus parts of eastern Indiana, and parts of West Virginia. Also keep in mind, no one bothered to ask the natives who already live here what they thought about the whole deal. So I'm sure you can see what's about to happen. It started in 1740 with a man named William Trent, T-R-E-N-T. He's the wealthy son of an even wealthier Quaker merchant in Philadelphia, who is also named William Trent. The father had built a lifetime of business and trade networks, and now he had this booming shipping business going. In fact, he's the guy who established a little New Jersey town called Trent Town. Today, we call it Trenton. So, like his father, William Jr. is a British citizen in the Virginia colony. 
and he purchases and he lays claim to land west of the Alleghenies. So a quick geography lesson here. The Allegheny River runs basically north and south from New York down through the upper corner of western PA. The Monongahela River runs north and south through West Virginia and up through the lower corner of western PA. At the point where those two rivers run into each other just west of present-day Pittsburgh, they form the Ohio River which then generally flows in a westerly pattern until it smacks into the Mississippi River, just south of St. Louis. And if you remember, St. Louis is quickly becoming the center of the fur trade. So all those fat fur bundles coming out of there have to either go north on the Ohio River to the Great Lake ports and to the New York fur brokers, or south to New Orleans to be shipped to Europe. Additionally, with the use of portages, one could essentially navigate from Lakes Erie and Huron to Lake Ontario, down the Genesee River, and onto the Allegheny, again taking you right past this juncture of those three rivers. So it's kind of like all waterways lead to Pittsburgh. And that's where our man Trent Jr. sets up his trading post. And it's absolutely brilliant as far as locations go because now he's sitting on the controls of trade goods going north up the Allegheny, going south down the Monongahela, and west on the Ohio. He's also seeing lots of new settlers going west to claim land, and he basically is the last rest stop for 3,000 miles. So yeah, it's a brilliant location, but he's not the only guy setting up shop here. Besides the French, both the Pennsylvanians and the Virginians have laid claim to this area. So the French decide to build a series of forts that will protect their hunting grounds and their trade partners and basically keep them land-grabbing Brits from interrupting their trade on the Great Lakes. So in 1753, the French erected Fort Presque Isle on Lake Erie. And if you ever get the chance, it is an absolutely gorgeous place to visit. Then they build Fort Leboeuf, which is near present-day Waterford, PA. Now, while all that construction is going on, the British Lieutenant Governor of the Virginia Colony is a guy named Robert Dinwiddie. And he's watching these forts go up, and he's getting upset. He's not happy that them land-grabbing French are putting their forts up on his territory. So he sends his military muscle man, a guy by the name of Lieutenant Colonel George Washington to Leboeuf to nicely ask the French to leave and then threaten them when they don't. And while he's there, Washington is supposed to assess the strength of the French forces just in case they refuse. Well, of course they're going to refuse. The French then built Fort Machaut in 1754, right on the Allegheny River near present-day Franklin, Pennsylvania. And these forts were designed to protect the trade vessels that were moving up and down the Allegheny River out of the lakes. But the ultimate protection would be from their masterpiece creation, Fort Duquesne, which they planned to put at that highly sought-after point where the Allegheny meets the Monongahela and forms the Ohio. Well now, hang on a second, one of those land-grabbing Brits already has his trading post set up there. So he calls for help. So to get a jump on the French, 
Robert Dimwitty, who I remind you is in Virginia Colony on the East Coast, tells 40 of his men to get up there quick and begin construction. In the name of the British monarch, of course. He wants his new fort set up right next to William Trent's trading post, and he calls it Fort Prince George. Washington, meanwhile, gets back to Dinwiddie in Virginia with the French's refusal shortly after in 1754. And Dinwiddie spins him around and sends him right back to Fort Prince George to protect it from the French. But before Washington can get there, 600 French troops came and knocked it over. Well, actually they didn't. They came and surrounded Trent and his 40 construction guys with loaded rifles and cannons. The Brits decided they were not getting paid enough to put up with this nonsense, so when the French asked nicely, they voluntarily surrendered. The French then gave them the option to go home, and even bought the construction materials and the tools from Trent as the guys walked away. But that's not the story that Washington would receive. Washington learns that Fort Prince George has fallen while he's on the road, so he and his men start making their way in that general direction faster, and they occupy their time by hunting down any and all French Canadians that they can find along the way. On May 28, 1754, George Washington encounters a group of Canadian scouts near Jumonville, which is near present-day Uniontown, and he attacks them. This is often considered the official start of the French and Indian War. Well, Washington decides he needs to have a place of refuge, so he built Fort Necessity in what is today known as Fayette County in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. And by early July, he was getting his butt kicked pretty solidly. He didn't have any source of military intelligence, and therefore he lacked a sense of what was going on around him. While he actually wasn't doing all that bad, he began to see his situation as impossible. When the French offered to let him and his men go home if they laid down their weapons and surrendered, he took the deal. By the end of summer 1754, the French were putting their finishing touches on their newest creation, Fort Duquesne, built on the ruins of Fort Prince George. But the Brits weren't just going to let the French get away with that now, were they? So they send a man named General Edward Braddock, and he tries to take Fort Duquesne from the east side. He had the superior numbers, and his men had superior discipline, but there were a few problems. First of all, Fort Duquesne wasn't as lightly guarded as Braddock had assumed it would be. Secondly, almost half of his men were killed with the first few volleys. And ironically, his forces were actually getting the upper hand, and probably would have won the day had it not been for the fact that Braddock got shot in the lung and collapsed. This completely freaked out his men who turned tail and ran. One of those young recruits who barely escaped with his life was none other than the famous Daniel Boone who would spend the rest of his days telling anyone and everyone who would listen how much of a putz Braddock was. Then in 1758, a professional Scots soldier named General John Forbes got his chance to take Fort Duquesne. His right-hand man was a guy named Henry Bouquet. Rather than put all of his proverbial eggs in one basket, Forbes assaulted Fort Duquesne on several fronts. 
First of all, he was highly intelligent and charismatic, a Scotsman with a cool accent and a great personality. So he convinced the local natives, who up to now had very few nice things to say about Brits, to come over to his side. While Henry Bouquet and the 2,000 Scots Highlanders were pounding the snot out of the fort on one front, Forbes was undermining all the French support on the other. Then, knowing that most of these allied tribes defending Fort Duquesne were just sick of all this fighting business and just wanted to go home to their families, he called in one of the most famous negotiators of the day, Simon Gertie. If you haven't listened to his episode, I strongly encourage you to. It goes more into specifics of this fight. Simon Gertie helped John Forbes draw up a deal called the Treaty of Easton. It basically said that the natives all agreed not to fight the British, and in turn, the British would give them back select pieces of land. And the Brits promised, with no crossies, that they'd go home after the war. Well, as you can imagine, the Native Americans wanted their land back, so they just melted away. And the French defenders at Fort Duquesne now had a really big problem. Rather than letting those land-grabbing Brits have it, they burned it to the ground before they fled into the night. In fact, they burned the whole string of forts down to nothing. So the wily General Forbes builds a new fort very near the ashes of Fort Duquesne, and he names it after the British Secretary of State, William Pitt the Elder. This would be known as Fort Pitt. And he then, in his sheer brilliance, builds a supporting settlement around the fort, naming it Pittsboro. Then the King of England issued a proclamation in 1763 that said no white settlers were allowed west of the Allegheny Mountains, and anyone who was living there had to give the land back to the natives and get back on their side of the line. And an Ottawa chief named Pontiac basically threw both his hands out in desperation towards the Brits and went, Really? Really? Now, if you already did listen to the Simon Gertie episode, you'll remember he was living with the Seneca Indians, and particularly with a chief named Gayasute. And you'll probably also remember that, like any sane individual, the natives were expecting the Brits to keep their no-crossies promises and give the land back. And they had also promised to go home. First, the natives gently reminded the Brits of their promises. Then they asked nicely. When the Brits blew them off, they got loud and they demanded the Brits go home. And when that didn't happen, all the different tribes banded together. And under the leadership of that man named Pontiac, they planned to make the Brits keep their word. Well, Gaiasuta was the man in charge of laying siege to Fort Pitt. And for a few months, Gaiasuta was doing okay. At least until Forbes' second-in-command came to the rescue. Remember that Henry Bouquet? He came out with his forces at a place called Bushy Run. He showed the Indians the error of their ways. And soon after, native resistance melted away. If you listen to the Simon Gertie episode, you may remember what comes next. When it came time to host a delegation of the natives to draw up the peace treaty, William Trent offered them a gift, as was the custom. Two blankets and a handkerchief from the smallpox hospital. This is the first time in U.S. history that we attempted to weaponize a biological agent. 
it failed, thankfully. And the native delegates agreed to follow Britain's rules, be nice to everyone, and go away. In the relative quiet of the year that followed, 1764, Forbes took the opportunity to reinforce Fort Pitt. And one would think that with the French now banished from the American territories, the argument over who owns Pittsburgh would be over. But you would be wrong. Because in 1768, the Treaty of Fort Stanwix opened up all kinds of land for the new American colonists. William Penn had purchased all of the current Pennsylvania property from the Iroquois Confederacy. That imaginary line that the settlers weren't allowed to cross was moved from the western edge of the Alleghenies to way farther out west. Now, up until this time, the colony of Virginia and the province of Pennsylvania both said they owned Fort Pitt. And in the meantime, the Pittsburghians were like, uh, okay, whatever, we've got work to do, you go argue over there. So while William Penn and Lord Baltimore are bickering, the Pittsburghians get to work. And they started work in March of 1771 by forming the county seat of Bedford to govern those new frontier lands opening up west of the Alleghenies. And by April of that year, they had their first civilian local governments called Pitt Township. They had lots of settlers coming through looking for the supplies that they needed to get out west. And these ingenious Pittsburghians were like, hey, buy your supplies here. And oh, look, we've also got these really nice boats for sale, so you don't have to head west in a stuffy old wagon. We can ship you and your stuff out by boat. And they very quickly built up an economy involving the transportation of people and goods up and down these three rivers. Then, just as before, the imaginary line that was to keep the white settlers within a certain boundary began to be ignored. The Ohio Shawnee were getting tired of it. And they started attacking white settlements at an alarming rate. To stop those attacks, the governor of Virginia, a man named John Murray, 4th Earl of Dunmore, declared war on the natives, and he called out the Virginia militia. After a resounding victory, the Shawnee signed a treaty that ended Dunmore's war, giving up all the hunting rights to the Ohio Valley. And that should have been the end of it. But a band of Shawnee who refused to accept the treaty and refused to accept the terms of peace started attacking white settlers throughout Kentucky and northern Tennessee. And one of those people they attacked would be a name that you have certainly heard of. Who's the one white man you would not want to pick a fight with in the Kentucky wilderness? Daniel Boone. But that's a story for another day. Now, 20 years earlier, William Penn of Pennsylvania and Lord Baltimore of Maryland started bickering over where the line was between their two states. In fact, William Penn accidentally started building his capital in Maryland at first. They each had a rather confusing piece of paper saying that they owned part of the other guy's territory. So the two men, after bickering for a decade, hired an expert team of Brits. An astronomer, Charles Mason, and a surveyor, Jeremiah Dixon, and said, figure it out. They had 244 miles of land surveyed. And at the end of it all, Mason Dixon basically laid out a map and drew out where the line was supposed to be. There, the matter is settled. 
Then up comes this argument between Virginia and Pennsylvania about who's going to get Pittsburgh. So William Penn basically took a pencil and continued that Mason-Dixon line all the way across until it hit the western border. And that was that. Pittsburgh was squarely within Pennsylvania's boundaries, and Virginia couldn't do anything about it. In 1785, the paperwork was signed, and Pittsburgh officially became a Pennsylvania town. And the Pittsburghians kind of shrugged, and they wasted no time getting their house set up. Before the year was out, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette was created, the first newspaper on the Ohio frontier. And a year later, in 1787, the Pittsburgh Academy was formed. But you might know it by its more common name, the University of Pittsburgh. And to put that in perspective for you, the first Rocky Mountain Rendezvous will not happen for another 38 years. And after 1787, for the next nine years, the people of Pittsburgh got down to business. They were creating new industries, opening up manufacturing hubs, and they were becoming the go-to place for settlers wanting to go west into the Ohio country or head north into the Northwest Territories of Canada. And they catered to everything the settlers could possibly need. They established vast agricultural communities that fed the inhabitants and supplied the visitors with their supplies. And they inadvertently created something else. You see, when the farmers had barley and hops left over from their consumers, they would distill it into whiskey. And it was apparently quite good, because Pittsburgh whiskey was in very high demand. And they were making a tidy sum of profits for their efforts. Then the government decided to tax the snot out of alcohol to pay for the rather expensive American Revolution. It was the first national tax on a domestic product, and the farmers of western Pennsylvania lost their minds. It seemed to most people in the government that taxing whiskey was a really good idea. But some in the government were divided in their opinions about whether or not anyone had the right to do it. One half said no. They had just fought a war railing against taxation without representation. And the other half said the government can do whatever they want. And anyone who rebels is basically what we today would call a terrorist. If you add to the fact that many of these farmers were Revolutionary War veterans who were still waiting for their paychecks, the government was not real eager to upset these guys. Eventually, the government decided it was a really bad idea, and they repealed the tax. And the Pittsburghians just shrugged and went back to business. They opened up manufacturing hubs to make glass, a common item east of the Alleghenies, but a very rare and expensive commodity on the frontier. Now, an interesting way to judge the health of a community is to look at the population over a span of time. If the numbers go up, the place is doing well. Sudden drops in the population likely correlates to some type of hardship or a terrible event. So in 1797, Pittsburgh's population was around 1,400 people, and that's based on the official census. By 1800, only three years later, it had jumped 165 people. And 10 years after that, it had jumped 3,200 people. Now, part of the reason for the uptick in humans living here was all the things that Pittsburgh offered. Not only were they on 
the cutting edge, so to speak, of industry. They were involved in things like performing arts long before many cities back east were even thinking about it. In fact, the first play in the city was held at the old courthouse in 1803. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. That's the same year that Meriwether Lewis walked into a Pittsburgh boat company and purchased a keelboat to begin his famous expedition to the wilderness. Then the New Americans hit a snag. The War of 1812 kicked off, and the Brits refused to trade us any goods. So what did the Pittsburghians do? They shrugged and started making things for themselves. That same year, the first theater was built in the city. And within three years, they were producing significant quantities of iron, brass, tin and glass, grain, bread, cloth, you name it. They had those vast tracts of farmlands raising their food. So they had all the staples they needed. And companies like tanneries and mills were converting animal hides into leather. So they could make all the shoes and clothing they needed. And the furs out of the frontier were coming through Pittsburgh on the way out. The city of Pittsburgh became official on March 8, 1816. And it was quickly becoming one of the country's largest cities west of the Alleghenies. Now, the population in 1810 was around 4,700 people. And by 1820, it was 7,200. And by 1830, 12,500. Then in 1831, something happened halfway around the world that would change the face of this growing city forever. It's called the Merthyr Rising, and it was the culmination of years of simmering unrest in a place called Merthyr, Wales. The coal miners and the steel workers there were calling for reform to lousy working conditions and horrible pay. And when they put up a fuss, they found themselves unemployed. So they left. And a huge influx of them landed in Pittsburgh, and they brought all of those steelworking skills with them. And suddenly, all sorts of new markets were opening up. A year later, in 1830, the Baltimore-Ohio Railway had been created to transport goods back and forth between, well, Baltimore and Ohio. Now the steel industry had that new mode of transportation at their disposal, and the industry took off like a shot. Remember, the population in 1830 was just over 12,000. By 1840, it had risen to over 20,000, almost doubling. When you take into consideration that the new Pennsylvania Canal had just connected the east side of Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh, all sorts of people and products were now using this new mode of transportation to get back and forth. But there's a downside to all this industrial growth. The metal industry was nearly a quarter of Pittsburgh's economy. And to keep that growing, factories ran hard, putting tons of dust and debris into the air. It's said that the people walking in the streets were so soot-covered that they were as black as Satan himself. When you add to that mess the, the massive debris from other industries like cotton fibers, dust from the flour mills, unregulated chemicals from tanneries and the like, it basically meant that everything was coated in a fine flammable powder just waiting for a spark. On top of all that, it hadn't rained for weeks, 
and the rivers and water reservoir levels were all very dangerously low. And this is a time where 90% of the buildings are built out of wood. That spark came in April of 1845. A fire to heat wash water was left unattended, which sparked a nearby barn, which spread to several nearby homes, which soon lit one-third of the city ablaze. When the fire crews tried to get the water from the reservoirs, all they got was a trickle of muck. As you can imagine, the fire crews were quickly overwhelmed. People came out to form bucket brigades. Civilians were climbing onto roofs to tamp out embers raining down from the sky. Some people simply ran for their lives, while others ran into those now abandoned homes to loot the goods and household items. One hotel owner got so desperate, he used gunpowder to blow up all the surrounding buildings to create a firebreak, which actually worked. But from noontime on April 10th, until dawn the next morning, bedlam reigned. It's estimated that as many as 1,200 buildings were destroyed, and more than 12,000 people were left homeless. Considering the population at this time was around 24,000, that's half of the city's people with nowhere to go. What's worse, all but one of the insurance companies in Pittsburgh went bankrupt from this disaster. At the same time, as the city of Pittsburgh was going up in smoke. Another event happening halfway around the world would change the face of Pittsburgh forever, very literally. For some time, the people of Ireland had been struggling with the blight that was affecting their potato crop, a staple they heavily depended on for survival. But by 1845, most of them were starving to death. And that's not being dramatic. Roughly a million people died in what is called the Great Famine. Another two million left Ireland altogether in one of the greatest mass exoduses from a single island in human history. They were immigrating to the U.S. for a chance at a better life, and a fair number of them were on their way into the West to create that life when Pittsburgh burned down. So over the next year, Pittsburgh was rebuilt by the hardy souls who lived there and their new Irish friends. Some of the Irish stayed on in the city and took up jobs in the steel industry. They helped rebuild industries and they helped create new ones. They built the Swanson School of Engineering in 1846 that would someday turn out big names like Reginald Fessenden, who pioneered wireless communication, like the cell phone in your hand, and Bob Colwell, who was the brains behind the Pentium microprocessors. So, with the influx of immigrants that stayed on in this newly rebuilt city, the census for 1850 says the population doubled again to over 46,000 people. These industries being centered around steelworks attracted thousands of immigrants from all over the world. But Pittsburgh also attracted another demographic, the runaway slaves. The Mason-Dixon line was the unofficial cutoff of slave ownership, so to speak. In many parts of Pennsylvania, something called the Underground Railroad was active in helping runaway slaves find freedom. And there were several Underground Railroad stations in Pittsburgh alone. For example, the Monongahela House Hotel was a stopping point for many slaves because the free black staffers were helping them on their way to freedom. Probably the most famous story is that of the Drennan Slave Girl. 
The story goes that a rich southern couple named Drennan and their slave girl had registered at the sumptuous five-star Monongahela House Hotel. After a month-long trip, the Drennans were road-weary and they were anxious to cut loose a bit, so the slave girl helped her mistress prepare for dinner. Then after her masters went to eat, she proceeded to do the normal chores she would do, like send the couple's clothes to be mended and washed. When the hotel staff came to retrieve that laundry, they informed her that they were servants of a kind, but that they were paid and not slaves, and that Pennsylvania had long ago abolished slavery. The young girl is said to have simply walked out the back door and into a new free life, never to be seen or heard from again. Sometimes the slaves sought refuge in the cities, like Pittsburgh, but more often than not, they were headed north to Canada, where there was less of a chance of them being caught and sent back to their masters. Now, by 1857, over a thousand factories and mills were in business, consuming an estimated 22 million bushels of coal annually. Then came the Civil War, and the demand for iron and weaponry kicked those factories and mills into high gear. For years, those factories produced around the clock. By 1860, the population had increased by a few thousand more people. And some of those new faces in that population were putting sharp minds to work to improve industries. In 1865, Dale Carnegie's Pittsburgh Locomotive and Car Works was created, improving the efficiencies of rail systems. A young and relatively obscure Civil War veteran came up with his first invention at age 19. It was a rotary steam engine, and his name was George Westinghouse. In fact, over the coming years, he'd go on to improve the way rail systems worked, creating innovative things like air brakes and electronic switching. And eventually, he'd create Westinghouse Electric in New York City. In 1860, the population was just over 49,000 people. Ten years later, it was 86,000 plus. Andrew Carnegie opened his steel company just outside of Pittsburgh in 1875. And the job market took off like a rocket, or rather a freight train. And by 1880, Pittsburgh was home to more than 156,000 people. 1890, 239,000 and it jumped almost 100,000 more over the next 10 years. Now, by 1910, Pittsburgh was the eighth largest city in the nation, producing between a third and a half of the entire country's steel and shipping those steel products all over the world. And the population within the city limits was just over half a million people. And then in May, 1918, Something happened in Pittsburgh that would affect a country, or rather create a country, halfway around the world. An agreement, simply known as the Pittsburgh Agreement, was signed, and that created the country of Czechoslovakia. Now, over the next 30 years, the population would continue to grow exponentially. The mills continued to spew black coal dust into the air and the city would continue to be on the forefront of technology and production. When World War II kicked off, the increased demand for steel sent those mills into overdrive once more, 
with almost all of them running 24-7 to produce the 95 million tons of steel needed by the American military. This resulted in the highest air pollution in 100 years. Now, after the war, a program called the Renaissance was launched, and it was designed to clean up the air and the water, and it worked fairly well. Then the 1950s came, and people started looking around at the city at what had been created. Neighborhoods were beginning to look dirty and squalid. Crime was increasing, and the whole place kind of looked cruddy. Not the rich neighborhoods, of course. Those were still gated and manicured. But where the everyday people lived, it wasn't looking good at all. And this state of disrepair is reflected in the population census data. So 1977 came, and they saw a new form of this Renaissance program. It was designed to improve the neighborhoods and create the kind of city that people would want to live in. But the numbers continued to drop. And then, in the 1980s, only three years later, the steel and electronics industries imploded. Mass layoffs began as mills and plants closed their doors permanently. By the time the 2000s came along, Pittsburgh knew it had to adapt or die. So it again took up the mantle of ingenuity, and it shifted its sights to a new economic base centered around education, tourism, healthcare services, and high tech. And by the late 2000s, when the recession hit, Pittsburgh was adding jobs when almost every other major city in the country was losing them. So having the influence of so many different cultures and so many sharp minds working to create a better city paid off. Technology from Pittsburgh has brought you some of your most beloved childhood memories. For example, in 1954, a local public broadcasting station was created, which has since become known as the birthplace of community-owned TV. And it's because of that one station that you have your childhood favorite of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, or Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Those two shows came out of that one PBS station. And they were also one of the first stations to broadcast National Geographic specials to Pennsylvanians. Now, I don't think we can really discuss Pittsburgh without discussing its people. The influence of Scottish, Irish, German, Polish, Slavic, African-American, French, English, it created a language unique to this place. Some call it Pittsburghese, and others call it Yinzer, Y-I-N-Z-E-R. In fact, a Yinzer is the nickname for a person who comes from Pittsburgh. My boss is a Yinzer, and I can hear certain things in his speech that just screams I'm from Pittsburgh. For example, they don't clean up, they red up. When the floor is wet, it's slippy rather than slippery. And rubber bands are called gum bands. I also noticed there's an R placed in certain words, like, did you wash your clothes? And that little stream of water is in a creek. It's a creek. But probably the one thing I find most interesting, more than his accent, is the fact that he bleeds black and gold. This is common among people from Pittsburgh because they take their sports very seriously. It all started with a major league baseball team 
the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1882. In fact, the Pirates won their first World Series in 1903. Then, the NFL football team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, were founded in 1933. And in 1937, their professional basketball team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, were started. Yeah, you heard me right. Every team was called the Pirates until 1940, when the Steelers finally got the name that we all love. And then, finally, in 1967, the hockey team was formed. Do you know what they called it? Thankfully, not the Pittsburgh Pirates. They named it the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, Pittsburgh is the home of Carnegie Mellon Research University, and that alone has its share of cutting-edge achievements in everything from medicine to technology. And Pittsburgh can lay claim to many a cameo in films. Dogma, Silence of the Lambs, Flashdance, Inspector Gadget, and so, so many more were all at least partially filmed there. And if you ever have seen Batman The Dark Knight Rises, Gotham City is Pittsburgh. So from a fur trading post on the far-flung edge of nowhere to a major metropolis on the forefront of science and technology, this country would be a very different place if it wasn't for the Yinzers and their perseverance. Pittsburgh made the fur trade happen. It opened up the frontiers to people so a nation could be tamed. And then it produced the steel that built that nation. That's it for this week's episode, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Pittsburgh. I encourage you to check out the other episodes at fursandfrontiers.com. And we're now on Spotify. Join me in a few weeks for another episode. Yins, have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry.